Uh, the rest of you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We've been in the book of Exodus for uh, some time now, and uh, we just finished up looking at the Ten Commandments, and so we're going to continue uh, in Exodus. We'll be starting in Exodus 21. Uh, well, as uh, many of you know, uh, my wife Whitney is pregnant, and we are like days away from a baby, so we made it through today. I was like, we got to make it to today, because it's my last Sunday in the pulpit for a couple of weeks, and uh, at staff meeting, we were like... Uh, what's the backup plan? And I was like, we don't have a backup plan, so we'll just figure it out on Sunday, I guess, or you guys will figure it out because I'll be having a baby. Uh, but when we have a, a, a newborn, uh, this will be our fifth, so we've, we, this isn't our first rodeo, but uh, when we have a newborn, my favorite thing to do is just sit and hold a newborn and watch something and rock. Uh, and so we usually like pick a TV show that we're going like, to stream through, but this time, we timed it perfect because... March Madness is about to start, and there will be a lot of basketball watching in the Hollowell household, and maybe some of you will pick up uh, some basketball uh, throughout the month of March, but uh, something that is, uh, has always been uh, a fun thing for us is watching basketball and, and watching through this, and if you jo- join in watching March Madness, what you're going to see is every time... Uh, they call timeout. Anytime a coach calls timeout, they always, they kind of have a routine. Every coach is a little different, but they usually walk out to one spot, collect their thoughts, then they walk back and charge their team with some stuff. And they always grab the whiteboard, right? And they start writing a play down, start drawing up a play. And it always seems like, well, hey, guys, if you're making up a play right now, you're probably going to lose the game already. Like, I mean, you should have worked on this in practice, right? Like, However, the reality is that the game plan that you set up is only as good as the execution in the details. And so you've got to be able to execute a game plan in the details in the moment. And you have to be able to respond to whatever the other team is doing. And so uh, oftentimes coaches will sit them down and say, hey, if they come with this defense, this is the play you're going to run. And if they come with this defense, this is the play you're going to run, right? You have to be able to respond to what's happening. Well, there are sections of God's law that function kind of like this. It's what we call case law. And they function like this. If this thing happens, then you do this. If that thing happens, then you do this. And trying to take the big picture game plan of the Ten Commandments and execute it in the details of life. Execute it in all the details of life. This case law shows up in this section of Exodus, from Exodus 21 through Exodus 23. And so today, we're actually going to look at that whole chunk. We're not going to read that whole chunk. Don't worry. Although I could just read it, and then we could be like, done, right? Like, all right, let's pray. Uh, But case law shows up in a bunch of other places. Most of the book of Leviticus is case law. Most of the book of Deuteronomy is case law. And if you've ever read through the Old Testament in a Bible reading plan or something like that, you get to these chunks and you're like, what is happening? This makes no sense. Like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, how do I, like, this feels very odd. It feels like very foreign to my experience. And 
sort of obscure, and I'm not sure how to handle these things. And so what I want to do this morning for you, this sermon's going to feel a little different from some of our normal sermons, but what I want to do this morning is give you an introduction and some tools for you to understand what do I do with these sections of the law, and then I'm going to give you two examples from this section of Exodus. So we're going to talk through some principles of how to understand this, what to do with this case law, and then I'll give you two examples. And I'm going to take a hard example related to slavery and an easier example related to the Sabbath. And so I want to show you how you can take on hard things. I could have just avoided all the hard ones, just been like, hey, this is my example. But how to take on these harder passages and what to do with them. And how do we understand what they are? Now, the reason this section of the law is so hard is because we live in an entirely different culture than what was happening as Moses is giving the law to the Israelites in the ancient Near East. It's a completely different culture. And so we should expect that when the law goes into details, it would look totally different, right? Like if the law were to come to us today, there would probably be things about cars and technology and all sorts of different things because it applies to the details of life. That's not our, that's not the reality present in Exodus. And so we should expect things that feel very foreign to us. We should expect that. Because it's written to a different culture in a different time. We are separated by time, geography, and culture. And the other reason that this is hard is because the world is broken by human sin. Oftentimes when people bring concerns to the Bible, when they read sections of the Bible and they're like, this does not sound okay. They are assuming that what the Bible should say is only talk about what is pure and holy and righteous and perfect. But the problem is, this thing happens in Genesis 3, to which we fall into sin, and so the law is coming not to a perfect people that says, hey, this is everything, and you should easily be able to do this. The law is coming to a broken and sinful people. Meaning the law takes into account that people are broken and sinful and already participating in brokenness, already participating in things that are not according to God's ideal. And therefore, the law comes in to mitigate human sin and to mitigate suffering in the midst of a broken and fallen world. And so, I want to give us a few principles to walk through this uh, together this morning. So first, we're going to start in the New Testament in Mark 10, and I want to walk through this passage that I think will help us think through some things. All right, so some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question, him being Jesus. So Jesus is teaching all throughout the New Testament. When Jesus is teaching, when the Pharisees show up, what they're trying to do is trap Jesus into some questions. It never works, but they always try it over and over again. And so this is good for us, right? Because we come to the Bible and to Jesus with questions trying to trap Jesus all the time. If we could just say, well, like, okay, but what about this thing? Trying to trap him, right? That's what we're trying to do in our hearts. So let's not judge the Pharisees too quickly because we're right there often. So should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them without a question, with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? So see, what 
Jesus understands already that they're trying to trap him because they're asking him a question they already know the answer to. And he's like, well, tell me. Tell me what the answer is. Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Now, I'm not going to focus in on divorce. I want to focus in on actually a, a, a part of this in which Jesus is helping us to unpack some things. He's using this divorce thing as an example. Now, certainly, the rest of the New Testament continues in the, the understanding that there are legitimate uh, reasons for divorce that the Bible says are legitimate. There are illegitimate reasons as well, but the Bible uh, talks about those things. And also, those aren't things that's like, hey, you're done, right? Like, <laughs> right? like there's no grace ever once you break a law, right? Because if that was the case, uh, we should all just pack up and go home now. <laughs> because, uh, or, or you can go listen to all of our sermons on the Ten Commandments, because I hope that you've realized, like, oh, I break that one, and that one, and that one, and that one right? And keep going, right? So not this hard and fast like you are judged immediately in the midst of that. However, what I want to focus in here is on what Jesus says. He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts, but God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that the law is sinful and wrong, that Moses should not have done that. He doesn't say that. But what he does say is there's a distinction between God's ideal for creation and a law mitigating human suffering. That actually this divorce law functions in uh, incredible ways in the ancient Near East. There aren't things similar to it, and it's incredibly gracious to protect women who are vulnerable in that culture. This is actually a protection for women in that culture and was designed to be used as that. That you couldn't just say, like, I'm done with you, you're gone forever, right? Like, there are stipulations on how you would do that, right? But it's to mitigate the suffering caused by an action, not the ideal of God's creation. So we're going to keep that in mind, okay? we got to keep that in mind because as we walk through the case law, there's going to be sections in which we have to determine, is this law seeking to promote the ideal of God's creation Or is it seeking to mitigate ways we've already broken that? Does that make sense? And see, you can see this distinction here of what this is. Mitigate suffering of people or pushing the ideal of God's creation. Now, certainly, is the ideal the goal? Yeah, absolutely. We want to continue to pursue that, right? That's the goal. But in the midst of suffering, how do we mitigate some of that suffering? Right? That's kind of the goal of what we're trying to see. So this is a big, uh, big issue that we need to consider as we look at case law. All right, a couple other principles that I want to talk about when it comes to case law. One is that they are consistent with the Ten Commandments. Right? So the Ten Commandments function as this uh, basic moral principle outlining God's heart for his people. And every place that we find in the case law, it should be consistent with the Ten Commandments. Actually, uh, some scholars would uh, separate the book of Deuteronomy 
by the Ten Commandments and say this section of case law is about commandment one, this section's about commandment two, this section. Like you can always kind of link them back to the Ten Commandments. So it is consistent with that. There's nothing separating those things. Uh, in his book, uh, Toward Old Testament Ethics, Walter Kaiser Jr. says this uh, for, for our second principle. People, not property, were at the heart of Old Testament legislation. We're going to see this as we walk through some of these laws, but we see consistently that people are at the heart of God's design for the world, and people, not property, are the highlights of the case law. Another principle that we need to understand is a principle called lex talionis, I think. I don't know. I don't really know how to say Latin things. So we're just going to go with this. The eye for an eye principle. Have you heard this phrase, right, that's in the scriptures, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? This phrase shows up in multiple places. It shows up in this section of the case law that we're looking at in Exodus. What do we do with that? Because I think we look at that and we are like, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like that, particularly in light of some of the things that Jesus says. Like, how do we understand what this is meaning in light of what Jesus says? Well, I think part of the reason we fundamentally don't like that is because we've misunderstood what it means. Uh, Again, to quote Kaiser, he says, uh, this uh, eye for an eye imposes only a strict limit on the amount of damages that were collectible. An eye for an eye might now read a bumper for a bumper, a fender for a fender. Don't try to get tuition money or cash for a boat. I like that phrase. I think that's pretty good, right? He says, furthermore, this was a rule for the judges and not an authorization for individuals to tell their opponents to hold still while they try to settle the score and punch out an equal number of of their teeth, right? (laughs) Kaiser's breaking it down for us and making it plain. The eye for an eye is not to say, okay, oh man, you punched out four of his teeth. Now hold him still and punch out four of his teeth, right? Like that's not what this was. It was a principle for the judges as you would come to the judges of Israel to settle a case, a dispute in which something has happened to your property or to your animals or to something in your possession and you're trying to figure out, hey, what's the right way to get restitution for what has been done wrong? So it was a principle to say to limit the amount of restitution you could try and get for what happened. This would be a helpful principle in our culture today because when people feel wronged, what they do is they litigate for far more damages than what it is actually how they've been wronged, right? Like this principle was to limit the amounts in which you could seek to gain financial restitution based upon what had actually transpired. Remember, this system is built on the idea of truthful eyewitness testimony. Right, We talked about this when we were talking through the Ten Commandments, right? This system, justice in this place is based upon this eyewitness testimony that is truthful, which is why God declares that you must not lie against your neighbor. So this is a principle for restitution that is fair, not just 
And, and, and here's the other reason why it's in there, right? It's not just a, oh, you're sorry? Okay, well, everything's better because you said you were sorry. No, like you actually wronged someone and you need to fix it. So there is restitution for the things that have been done wrong and actually righting the wrong, which actually has a lot of wisdom and we could take a lot of principles from that towards our criminal justice system, which is highly punitive and not restorative or uh, restitutionary. So that is a, a principle that we find throughout case law that you need to understand is happening. The final thing is that this deals with the particularities of life. It deals with the details of life. The execution of following God for the people of Israel was not just, hey, here's 10 rules, go have at it. No, God was gracious and said, hey, okay, so uh, if this thing happens, what do we do? Like, what are we supposed to do? How do we, now, it's not exhaustive. It does not deal with every particularity of life. But it does deal with enough to give the people of Israel a way to approach how to judge things together and how to be a just community together. Now, for us to understand that, we need to figure out, hey, what, like, how does this apply to us at all? Like, does it apply to us at all, or do we just throw this whole thing out? Well, clearly, my argument is it applies to us because I'm talking about it. <laughs> we didn't skip it. So it does apply to us, but how do we apply it? Okay, I want to give you six steps for reading, understanding, and applying the case law, and then we'll do our two examples, all right? So six steps for reading, understanding, and applying the case law. First, you need to try to understand the ancient Near Eastern culture and context. Now, this is where you need to lean on scholars who have studied these things. So for you, a good resource could be a really good study Bible, like the ESV study Bible has a ton of great resources in it, has some specific articles that would relate to some of these things, and those passages, it would have some explanation about the context underneath that. Also, really good commentaries would be able to help you walk through those things and show you those things. So if you are wanting to read sections of the case law, if after this sermon you're like, man, I'm inspired, I'm going to go read Leviticus. Uh, Come talk to me and I can give you some resources that you can kind of walk through those things. But there are ways, like, we're not just shooting in the dark. But what's really important for us, oftentimes, when we, as American Christians, often, we interpret the Bible as like, uh, it applies directly to me and it was written directly to me. Well, that's not true, <laughs> right? It wasn't written directly to you immediately. It was written to you by the Holy Spirit through these words, but you have to understand you're part of a bigger story and you have to be connected to that bigger story. So it's okay to be like, I have no idea what that means. One of the best things you can do in understanding the Bible is to say, I got no idea what that means. I say it all the time. And then I go wrestle with the Holy Spirit and with good scholars to wrestle through what does this mean? How do we understand these things, right? So you can do that. You can do that. And we can lean on scholars who have done really good work. We don't stand alone in this. So first, try and understand the ancient Near Eastern culture. Second, try to see where this law fits into the Ten Commandments. Try to think about it. We talked about the Ten Commandments a lot, right? And my 
encouragement to you would be to go back to the Westminster Larger Catechism, which we talked about a ton throughout the Ten Commandments, right? This is this teaching tool, question and answer, and it is so helpful on the Ten Commandments. I think it starts at question 90 or somewhere around there to like 120 or something like that, and it'll unpack what this commandment requires and what it prohibits. And read that and then figure out where does this case law fit within there? Because what it will do is it will help you put some like big picture hangers on things. Like, okay, this case law, it's fundamentally about worship or it's fundamentally about stealing or it's fundamentally about honoring uh, authorities. Like that will just help you as I start to walk through this. How do I apply it to my life? Third, try to see if there are any New Testament spots that pick this up. Like, does Jesus talk about it at all? So, when you get to the food laws or any sort of ceremonial laws, Jesus directly says, these no longer apply to the church. Now, that doesn't mean that we discard them. It means that Jesus has fulfilled them. We are not obligated to obey them. Praise the Lord for bacon, right? We can eat in the new covenant. We can eat bacon. That's why you want to be a new covenant Christian, right? Like, come on. Bacon is good, right? So, but like it has been fulfilled, but we need to understand the purpose of that, right? It's not because God's like, hey, here's some bacon. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is that we would be a people that is made up of all the nations. It's no longer a cultural specific thing. So, If we just remain culturally connected to just ourselves, we're not actually really obeying the spirit of Jesus in uh, 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 taking away the food laws, right? So we actually, if we're gonna live that out, we gotta be around people not like us and share Jesus with people not like us. That's the whole point of it, is that the nations would come into the kingdom. So, If it's food laws or ceremonial purity laws or sacrifice laws surrounding the temple, well, those things have been fulfilled in Jesus. But we can still learn something about what Jesus has done and what God requires in our worship in purity and in sacrifice that Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And so there's much for us to learn in those, not to apply it, right? We don't We don't split lambs and goats up here on Sunday morning, right? Because Jesus has fulfilled those things. But it's really important to read about those things to understand the level in which Jesus has fulfilled these. Fourth, you need to see if this is a law mitigating the suffering of people in a fallen world or seeking to establish shalom. Seeking to establish what God has actually designed. Shalom, peace. Uh, the thriving of mankind. Is this a law seeking to establish that or is it a law like the divorce law that we looked at? Is it a law seeking to mitigate the suffering caused by our actions, right? That will help you understand what to do with this. Fifth, are there anything, is there anything cultural in our day that is similar to this? Are there any bridges that I can make, right? Are there any bridges I can make? So if there is talk of, uh, what to do with if, uh, so there's these sections in this, this uh, area in which it's like, okay, if a bull gores another animal, then, you know, th- th- there's this certain restitution. So it's somebody's property, a, 
a bull, and also their livelihood, right? This is an agrarian culture, and so some of their livelihood affecting somebody else's, right? So are there things like that in our lives? Yeah, for sure. Like if my car rams into another person's car, what should the restitution be? Like how how do we understand what is God getting at here, and what does it mean to be the people of God, right? Then there's this other thing in there where it talks about if it's a gore that's or if it's a bull that's known to gore people, then there's a different restitution because you should have, as the owner, taken care of that, right? So if you're known to be a bad driver, you should take care of that, right? <laughs> I think that's the point. <laughs> you, should, you should get some training or something, right? You should just keep, keep wrecking into people. So the reality is there are ways in which we can make those links. It's gonna take work. This is not just like sitting down and being like, all right, boom, Let's read my Bible today, and I'm ready to go. I got my verse for the day. I don't think you should take your life verse from any of these sections, right? Uh, But it will be fruitful if you dig into the scriptures this way. This is how we want to read the scriptures all over the place. There's just some areas that are just easier to apply directly, and there are other areas that are a little harder. Sixth, and finally, the When Jesus is asked what's the most important commandment, he says, love God and love neighbor. These laws and our application of them, if they don't conform to love God and love neighbor, you've made the wrong application. If it does not conform to the idea of us loving God and loving our neighbors, even as Jesus says, our enemies, then we are not applying this scripture correctly. So this is kind of like the final check, right? If you get to the end of this and you're like, oh, that means this. So we're gonna do this in just a second. When we get to slavery, when we talk about ancient Near Eastern slavery and what happens in the midst of this law, if our answer is yes, that means slavery is good, you've misapplied this passage. You've misapplied this passage, right? When uh, Americans... Uh, American and Presbyterians, right? Just just own our own junk, right? When American Presbyterians said American chattel slavery was good based upon these passages, they were dead wrong because they were actually misinterpreting the passage itself and other places of scripture. So we have to understand, you can get this wrong and it can be a disaster. These are not just like minor things, right? So if you take a piece of the case law and you're like, boom, I'm gonna apply this here because I'm gonna say this deals exactly with what I'm dealing with, but it doesn't love God and love neighbor, then there's a big problem, all right? So, so we need to be able to do that well. All right, finally to the examples. All right, these will go quicker, I promise. All right, Exodus 21, verses two through six. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve you for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. If he was single when he became your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed with him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year, but his wife and children will still belong to their master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. All right. Now, this is why I said these are hard passages. When we read that, we think, this is not good, right? 
Anyone, anyone think this is good? If, if that's what you thought when you read this, you're probably like, we should talk later, right? Like, read this in our context with the benefit of the history that we've had. We should read this and be like, what is happening? And part of it's because we need to look at first, our first principle. Ancient Near Eastern slavery is not the slavery of the American uh, history. It is not American chattel slavery. It's not anything like it. Now, the words are the same, but it is not the same thing. Ancient Near Eastern slavery was, there's two ways to become a slave in the ancient Near East. You are a prisoner of war or you had debts that you could not pay. And if you had debts that you could not pay, there was no such thing as bankruptcy or credit cards or lenders. You sold yourself to work for someone else to pay off your debt. That's, that's the way the system worked. Particularly in Israel, because the land was sacred and given to individual clans, right? Like as Israel takes over the land, it's divided up into individual clans. You couldn't just like sell your land to somebody else, right? So you sold yourself into service, essentially as an employee, not as property. You were not sold as property. This language of selling and slavery has a connotation in our head that is not the connotation of the ancient Near East. Now, that being said, we'll get to what we do with some of these pieces, but that being said, uh, it is very, very different. And there is nothing like this in the ancient Near East, these t- kinds of laws. There are lots of laws governing slavery, but nothing that says as soon as you buy a slave, they are set free in the seventh year. It doesn't matter if they paid off their debt. They're set free in the seventh year. This is the law. You cannot perpetually own people. That's the law. And so for this passage to be utilized for American slavery was insane. Like it just literally can't be used that way, right? There's another law within the Old Testament that you have to kind of balance with this. And it's called the refugee slave law, which is if a uh, person from another nation escaped and they were a slave, you were not allowed to send them back to their master. They were allowed to be free in Israel. Now, that exists nowhere in the ancient Near East. Because what happened is, as you created treaties with other nations, you would say, I'll send my slaves back, or if your slaves escape to us, we'll send them back to you, and, and vice versa. That was not the case in Israel. But seeing these two laws, you undermine the system of slavery. Because everyone's going to get set free. There's no perpetual ownership. Everyone is going to get set free. Now, there's this other part of the law where it's like, well, what if this guy wants to stay? Well, he is voluntarily choosing after his debt has been paid or he has to be released to stay. He has personhood and choice in the matter. Remember, people and not property are part of the law. So ancient Near Eastern slavery, very, very different. Now, Uh, So that's principle number one. And that's really hard, but we really got to work hard to understand how that functioned if we're going to apply this correctly. And we should, from that, undermine any system of slavery that exists in the world because there's nothing like this. 
We should be able to undermine systems of slavery in the world because of this, not support them. So two, principle number two, what 10 commandments do these apply to? Well, first applies to you must not steal, right? This is a person who is voluntarily selling themselves into service, right? Essentially applying for a job, right? To pay off their debt. They're applying for a job to pay off their debt. Not someone that you are stealing and taking as your own. Not, that, that, that's not the case. They have choice in the matter. They have personhood. They have agency. You must not steal people. That's the eighth commandment. There's also relationship in, we, we talked about this in honoring father and mother, that there is uh, power dynamics in different relationships that are at play in the world, and there are ways in which God says you ought to understand those things. And if you are in a level of authority, you have to care for those under your authority, and the onus is on you to care for those under your authority. Certainly, there are ways in which you, as someone under authority, have to respond, but also the onus is always on the leadership to respond well in power differentials. So eight and five are really the two commandments. Must not steal and honor father and mother. Three, uh, New Testament places that pick this up. Jesus does not uh, like directly interact with slavery, but there is lots of places in the New Testament that I would argue undermine the system of slavery, even in the Roman world. Philemon being an example of this. If, if you want to hear more about this, I did a sermon on uh, the end of Ephesians in which it deals with slave and master, uh, a slave and master passage from Paul, which is connected to what he would say in the book of Colossians. So Colossians and Ephesians are these two letters that the apostle Paul sends, right? And he sends them with Onesimus, an escaped slave, along with the letter of Philemon to the church and to Philemon. And in which I argued in that sermon, and uh, I think that the book of Philemon very clearly lays out, Paul is instructing Philemon to release Onesimus. He's doing it in uh, sort of uh, guarded language in the way that he does it because of the uh, nature of Roman slavery, for sure. But he is saying, Philemon, you're going to treat Onesimus like a brother in Christ. You're going to treat him like you treat me. That certainly is not like a slave. You're going to free him. And then, as church history tells us, uh, Onesimus uh, took over after Timothy in leading the church in Ephesus. So Philemon would have submitted to Onesimus as his pastor at some point because that's what the church does. It upends the system, right? So that helps us understand how do we go back to this? Well, what what God is doing in this, right, and, and that brings us to principle four, which is this is a law to limit suffering, not establishing the ideal. The ideal is not this. It's to limit the suffering caused by debt, caused by uh, famine, caused by whatever natural disaster would have happened to cause people to go into debt, caused by poor decisions, whatever it is that caused this person to go into debt, this is a way to limit that. Because what happens when folks are in hard situations like situations of poverty and debt, people take advantage of them. This law is designed, you can't take advantage of them, you must free them. And not only must you free them, you're actually gonna send them out with stuff. They go out with some of the work that they've worked for under your household. They're gonna go out with that so that they don't get back into debt. That's the way the system works, right? So it's a system to mitigate suffering, not necessarily establishing the ideal. 
But that combined with what we learn from Philemon, we got to know that God's design for this is for mitigating the suffering caused by the world. So, five, are there things in our culture that can relate to this? Well, certainly I think there are some things that can relate to this. Anywhere in which there is uh, oppression of other people, we ought to be about undermining that. We ought to be about advocating for those who are oppressed and marginalized and taken advantage of that they would be cared for well. That the systems and structures would create equity and ability for people to actually move out of situations of poverty and debt. And the reality of like, there's like real debt forgiveness that happens in the midst of this, right? Like if you haven't paid off your debt in seven years, you're still set free. That's radical. Who, who would own that? The person who was in charge, right? We always in our culture put the onus on those who have gotten themselves in hard situations or were put in hard situations rather than on those with the power to actually alleviate those things. In the law, it's put on the power those with the power to alleviate the situation. So I think there is a lot of things that we could learn from this about what it means for us if we are in positions of power and authority, uh, if we are employers with employees, that we would treat them well, that we would see that the bottom line is not the most important thing, right? That, that money isn't the most important thing in making decisions uh, as a business owner or as a, a boss or a manager or whatever position you're in. Money's not the most important thing. People are. And you might have to actually take a loss in order to care for people well. It's one of the things that this law can show us. Finally, six. Whatever we do with this law, we have to know that the intention of it is for us to love God and love neighbor. God's design in the midst of this is for freedom and community and generosity. We can see that on display. If we understand the culture, understand those pieces, we can see that on display for freedom and generosity being pushed. All right, that's the hard one. The easy one will go faster, I promise. Well, maybe not. I shouldn't promise that because, you know, it didn't go faster on that one. So who knows? We're just going to dig in, all right? This is what happens when it's my last sermon for a couple of weeks, guys. Like, you're, nope, it's not going. Chris, you got to move that. I don't know why it stopped working. All right, go one more. Okay, uh, Exodus 23, verses 10 through 12. Plant and harvest your crops for six years, but let the land be renewed and lie uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Leave the rest for wild animals to eat. The same applies to your vineyards and olive groves. Keep going. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day, you must stop working. This gives your ox and your donkey a chance to rest. It also allows your slaves and the foreigners living among you to be refreshed. All right. So principle one, what's the difference between our culture and the ancient Near Eastern culture? Ancient Near Eastern culture was an agrarian culture, a live by the land. If you had no crops, you had no food or money or life, right? Like this was how you survived. Meaning when God says once every seven years, let your land, just let it go. That's a huge ask of faith. Once every seven years, just let it go. That's crazy. That's like, hey, you should 
just take a big sabbatical once every seven years from your job. Whole year. Everyone's like, all right, bringing this passage into my employer right now. (laughs) Elders, come on. Come on, let's go. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not advocating for a full year off every seven. But I would take it. I mean, (laughs) Uh, so we got... Right? So we got to understand the intensity of this law is ratcheted up. You got to understand that. This is a big deal. Also, even it goes right into Sabbath day, the intensity of that, the temptation to work always is huge for us. But imagine what it's like when it's like, if I don't work with my hands, I don't eat. That's not always the case for us. Right? We could take a day off and be okay because we can swipe a credit card. Right? Might lead to the things we talked about in the first section, but you're right, right? Like, but we have that option. That just wasn't an option for these folks. You had to trust in faith that God was going to provide for you. Trust in faith that God was going to provide for you. So this is a big deal. So obviously, principle two, what commandments? Certainly the Sabbath, commandment four, uh, to uh, take one day off a week, right? Obey the Sabbath. And uh, commandment eight on stealing, there's a level of generosity in here, right? We talked about in the commandment eight, it's not just not stealing, but it's also promoting generosity and fairness to those who are marginalized. What does he say? Not only do you leave the land to let it do what it's gonna do, you allow the poor among you to come and take from it freely to feast on it. This required people to be connected to one another. Now, here's an important thing for us to understand, right? For uh, uh, number three, what does the New Testament say about this? Well, in Mark chapter two, Jesus says this, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. You see, when, as soon as you get a law that's a little bit specific, you know what our human heart does? We make a lot of rules around it, add to it to make sure we can say, we're obeying it and you're not. That's what the Pharisees ended up doing, right? It was, you could move a certain number of places holding a certain number of sticks, but one more than that, boom, you're done. You've broken it. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, do you really think that's why God gave you the Sabbath? so that you could beat each other down? He said, rest. Not like make a whole bunch of rules so that you can yell at each other when you break them. Rest. That's what he said. The Sabbath was made not for you to fill some sort of requirements. It was made to meet your needs, to push you into places of faith and trust and rest, to show you You don't live in an agrarian culture in which you very clearly knew I'm dependent on things outside of me to live every day. We live often with the thought that we depend on only us to get through the next day. That's still not true. You depend on other things, right? How many of you were up at 3 a.m. because the tornado alarm was going off, right? Right? And it's this moment of like, oh, wait a second. We're very fragile. We're very fragile. In a moment, our life can be taken. We are 
utterly dependent on the Lord and his mercy to survive every day. And this shows us that. Also, Jesus, very clearly, generosity to the poor uh, is a marker of his ministry. So, fourth principle, I would say that this law is about creating shalom. It's about a hope uh, that if these laws are all working together in concert, there are no poor among you. This isn't a law necessarily mitigating the suffering. What it is is promoting a community in which we care for one another, resting well and being generous with one another. Uh, So how does this apply to us? Well, I think there's a ton that we can learn from this. Rest and justice. There's rest and faith and work, right? There are things that we say that they are super important, and so we're gonna work even harder to get and not trust God while working hard. This law pushes us to say, am I really gonna trust God? Am I really gonna recognize my own humanity, my own limits, and say no to something so that I can rest well and worship God and be generous to others? Or am I gonna jump into the same grind that everyone else has because their hope is in this world and not the world to come? That's where this really challenges us. So this affects you every week and every day. And this isn't to say like, hey, let's come up with a whole bunch of rules. Like, am I allowed to do this on Sunday? Am I allowed to do this on Sunday? No, again, this is for you. Rest, take a break, take a vacation, chill out, and be generous with the fruits of your labor with the poor. And we'll obey this. Clearly loving God and loving neighbor. Now here's the thing. Uh, How do we do that? Because we're not very good at this. Like the details of life Like, we're all on board with the big picture thing, right? The big picture thing of love God, love neighbor. Sweet, let's do that. But what about all the details of life? When it really, when the rubber meets the road, when you have an opportunity to do this, will you do it? How do we do that? I'm gonna skip this one. Titus chapter three says this. But, When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. This is the crazy thing of the, the, the genius of God and the way in which the law works. Do you see what Paul said to Titus here? He's writing to Titus, this pastor of a church. He says, you need your people to do good works in all the details of life, right? To obey God, loving God and loving neighbor. How do you do that? Tell them all their good deeds will not save them. That's what he just said. He says, you want them to commit themselves to doing good? Tell them, no matter how many good deeds you do, it's not gonna save you. You're already saved because of the mercy of Jesus. 
Because God already did all the work required for you to be accepted. Because Jesus went to a cross in your place, dying for the ways in which you disobey every detail of the law. And then gives you his perfect righteousness in your place. So that God looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus and not your good deeds or bad deeds. And this is available to any and all who will trust in Jesus and him alone for salvation. For any who say, I cannot make myself righteous, I'm leaning on Jesus and him alone to make me righteous. That's it. And if you do that, and if you cling to that, it will, by the Holy Spirit, produce good works. By the Holy Spirit, it will produce all the things that we just talked about. If you try and do all those things apart from this, we'll be exactly like the Pharisees. Jesus, what are we allowed to do? Because that person's not doing it. Versus Jesus, I love you because you've loved me. What do you want me to do? You see the difference of those two questions? The way in which we commit ourselves to the details of the law is by experiencing the grace of Jesus in the gospel and having our hearts transformed because of the mercy of God and the Holy Spirit so that we can be conformed to the person of Jesus. We need the Lord to do this, so let's pray to him that he would do this. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now admitting that there are a lot of hard things in the text. And God, we have tried this morning to just, Father, I tried this morning to just give some tools for us to understand the scriptures and how to wrestle through those things. God, if there's anything that I said that was unhelpful, let it fall away. But Holy Spirit, would you root deeply in us the things that bring you glory and honor so that we could be transformed for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.